Welcome to Philosophers on Medicine. Side effects include having your mind blown. I'm Jonathan Fuller. During the COVID-19 pandemic, scientists and policymakers have responded with unprecedented solutions. The pandemic has also forced a rethinking of science, public health, and their relationship to the public. How can philosophy of medicine help us to respond to the fundamentally philosophical problems that this rethinking involves? In May of 2021, I hosted a panel discussion with experts in health science, public health, and philosophy, titled Philosophy of Medicine on COVID-19. We talked about normal science and fast science, modeling and evidence in public health, science uncertainty and decision-making, expertise in science communication, and the relationship between public health and the public's. In today's consultation, we revisit that conversation with Trish Greenhall, Professor of Primary Care Health Sciences at the University of Oxford, Ross Upshur, Professor in Clinical Public Health at the University of Toronto, Alex Broadbent, Director of the Institute for the Future of Knowledge at the University of Johannesburg, Maya Goldenberg, Associate Professor in Philosophy at the University of Guelph, and Sang Wook Yi, Director of the HY Center for the Ethics, Law, and Policy of Science and Technology at Hanyang University. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about is normal science and fast science and public health crisis. So in addition to the viral pandemic, over the past year and a half, the world has seen an epidemic of questionable science practices. For instance, poorly designed and coordinated studies, pseudo-experts, and science by press release or preprint, as well as fetishized treatments such as hydroxychloroquine. At the same time, alongside this, we've seen science success stories, timely and effective vaccines, large collaborative platform clinical trials. Then again, there have been stark scientific and policy disagreements, as well as reversals of policy and opinion. So amidst all this, a couple of narratives have, have emerged. And these are, I see as competing narratives to make sense of what's going on. The first narrative that I've heard is that the pandemic has simply pulled back the curtain on what we might consider to be normal science. In normal times, science and public health are messy and uncertain. Disagreement is common. Science has its successes, but also its failures. And there's nothing particularly unusual going on here. But I think as many of us have heard, there's another narrative um, that these phenomena we've seen in the pandemic are characteristic of something different, fast science or public health crisis, in which the usual norms of science and public health are at least to some extent disrupted. So I'm interested in what story we should tell, which of these narratives are helpful, and what ways has COVID-19 science and decision-making been normal or abnormal? What can this teach us about the nature of science and public health? And maybe I'll add, you know, should there be norms for science that differ between crisis and calm? Trish. Yeah, no, great introduction, John. Uh, this is a really fascinating question, isn't it? And I, I, I'm a great lover of hard cases, hard examples in philosophy, because you can go round and round if you don't have those. Uh, and, and the one I, I started my pandemic, started cutting my pandemic teeth on was, was face masks. So let's, uh, why don't we just throw that one in? Um, it seems to me that it wasn't so much, or it wasn't the fast science versus slow science. And we need to ask why, why is science normally slow? And I, I think um, one of the reasons with medical science being slow is that what medical science often does is it tests new drugs and new drugs uh, need a lot of caution. 
because as we all know from those examples like TGM-1412, where a new drug was given to people and really ghastly things happened. So, so you know, if you're putting poisons into people's bodies, uh, dreadful harms can happen and it's entirely appropriate to be cautious. What we had with face masks was a lot of arguing about whether they were effective, whether they're not effective and extreme caution being argued by scientists who said, no, you're jumping the gun, we haven't got enough evidence yet, we must wait, we must have our randomized controlled trials. But actually, uh, there's this thing called the precautionary principle where it says, look, the chances of serious harm here are tiny. It's a piece of cloth. It's like your T-shirt. This is, this is really not a very harmful thing. Um, it might be very inconvenient and all the symbolic issues, uh, but the potential benefits were massive. We could have prevented a lot of deaths, but science, broadly speaking, said, no, 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 we must exercise caution because that is good science. And one of the things I remember at quite a personal level was getting emails from senior scientists in my own university saying, you know, you're being very slapdash here. But actually the precautionary principle was entirely appropriate because the balance of benefits and harms was very different for cloth face masks to what it was for a new drug. Uh, and in philosophy, I mean, you guys are philosophers. I'm not really a philosopher, I'm a sort of amateur philosopher, but, but I've heard this uh, presented as the problem of inductive risk. In other words, the hypothesis that you are uh, assuming is correct may not be correct, but you kind of know that. What you're saying is it doesn't matter if it's not correct or the downside is. So, that, so that's my hard case to throw into, into that. Yeah, thanks very much, Trish, for getting us started. Ross is jumping to get in. Yeah, no, so the, I, I, I think we have the uh, potential risk of spending the entire panel on this particular prompt and question uh, because it's so fascinating. So just to pick up, I think, you know, we might want to circle back to notions of inductive risk, which I think is a really important contribution that philosophy of science in particular can contribute to policy uh, discussions and debates. But uh, on the fast science issue, it's really fascinating to look. There's a, one of my favorite journals is called scientometrics. And they've done some studies on the fast science phenomenon. And it's not uniform across the disciplines and across the world where this rapidity has uh, actually shown up. Uh, so certain sectors have had a huge, and I was just at the R&D blueprint meeting for the WHO, I had to step out to come into this, and they presented where the investments were, like where the money's going, uh, where the speed, quote unquote, and acceleration is happening. Um, and it's really remarkable to see the heterogeneity of funding opportunities. So this perception of things going fast might be a phenomenon of where your head is at. Like if you're following Twitter, if you're following certain news media, it seems like there's this acceleration. But on certain really critical interfaces, particularly uh, in like there's one, um, aspect of the R&D blueprint, which is around One Health and origins and emergence of the uh, of viruses, uh, that hasn't been fast and hasn't got a lot of uh, uh, investment. Secondly, there's this notion of the ACT Accelerator, which is supposed to get $48 billion to move uh, science and uh, into the field to uh, uh, implement. And this, and you know, Trish will be interested in this, the health systems, like the primary care public health pillar has gotten no money. So 
as critical thinkers, we might want to stand back and ask, where has this acceleration taken place? Why is it that hydroxychloroquine got like 5,000 under, underpowered studies and all of this attention? Uh, but we want to step back and take an all things considered look at how science is performed across all of the relevant questions that require attention. And so some have been fast and some have been actually uh, not looked at at all. And sometimes I think that from certain perspectives, uh, the entire pandemic is occurring either in the spike protein or in the intensive care unit. And it seems to neglect vast swaths of human experience that I think devote need attention. Maya? Back to your question about what's the best characterization, whether it's normal science, whether it's fast science, the answer is actually everything. And there's even a few more sciences. There's crisis science, there's bad science, there's good science. All of those things are happening here. And when people try to characterize the research trajectory around COVID, they're pointing to certain things. So when people say, well, what we have here is normal science, they're trying to tell the publics, in most cases, they're trying to tell the publics to calm down about the fact that uh, directives coming from public health change at times, because that's normal science after all. And for, to think that science is a set of static facts is not, is not helpful. Same with the journalists who are uh, reporting on preprints, don't do that. Uh, at the same time, calling it fast science is pointing to uh, the crisis situation that we're in, and that is in some ways improving scientific outcomes and um, uh, harming it at the same time. So uh, Trish pointed to some disagreements, philosophical disagreements about what counts as enough evidence for uh, masking in the community. And that's kind of an old debate in public health, whether you need evidence-based public health or whether you need more pragmatic um, pragmatic evidence based on what you've got, what you can get, and uh, the need to act. Uh, we've also seen the other direction where uh, the standards for uh, trying new experimental therapies on, uh, on uh, patients have been dangerously low. So that's where evidence-based medicine seems to have left. Um, and, and that's, of course, exactly where we need the more, the more uh, careful trials. So all of those things are happening at the same time. What, what we should be doing is instead of trying to label it as a certain type of science in action, we have to sort of draw out what are the things that worked well. For example, the collective effort to uh, create new vaccines in a year was an amazing effort. Uh, then other things didn't work well, like uh, uh, stuffing those new vaccines under intellectual property um, protections are, is not helping the global health effort. So um, I'd like to see more about deciphering what went well and what didn't so we can have lessons learned. And Alex. Yeah, I guess I've got three things to say. The first thing is I think masks are actually unusual in the sense that the precautionary principle applies to them uh, because they are obviously low risk. Uh, that cannot be said for many non-pharmaceutical interventions, which have obvious uh, detriments. Um, and in fact, precautionary principle was used as a reason to implement them. Uh, uh, so the precautionary principle can work um, uh, both for fast science and to slow science down. Uh, I just want to make that point. Um, in many cases, what we've seen is actually, you know, the, the, the racing of results uh, and the using of results prior to their being published and so forth. And, the sec and that brings to the second thing I want to say is, which is that many people involved in science in these areas are actually want to influence policy. So there is a, you know, it is why they are doing this, that you're only really in public health uh, because you want to influence, uh, because you want to influence policy. It's, it's not like philosophy where you might want to influence policy, but you might not. 
uh, I, I think, um, and, and I, certainly the people I don't know in public health, obviously that's what they're, that's what they're doing it for. And I think that uh, creates an interesting situation where uh, there's a kind of desire to separate politics and science. And yet that's not actually the reality of, of, of why people are interested in the first place. Um, that's not a criticism. It's just that it's, it's interesting that the, the picture that one might have of science and politics and the relationship between them uh, uh, isn't, isn't is, is perhaps too simplistic. And it leads to the third issue, which is that the attempt to enforce that by a strong insistence on expertise, which on the one, in one way is, is reasonable where you have cranks and so forth, uh, but on the other hand is, um, is, is, is quite damaging, I think, because it means that uh, it's very difficult for people to bring in perspectives that aren't uh, backed by a clear scientific discipline. So if in particular you want to bring in, you know, uh, social, uh, social science type perspectives, um, uh, you want to raise contextual knowledge about a particular domain, a particular area, a particular region, unless you have an evidence base that, you know, you get asked, where's your evidence? Um, what, you know, wh and what's your expertise? Uh, and if you are not um, uh, a relevant medical scientific expert, and in particular, epidemiology uh, is, is a discipline in which people do come into it from very different backgrounds, uh, a little like they do to philosophy, interestingly, uh, then, you, th then uh, you, you risk being called the charlatans uh, simply because people don't agree with you don't think that's a situation that, that's um, beneficial from any perspective in the long term. Stang Wu, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I just want to uh, mention one point, uh, which is uh, related to the issue of a range of acceptable evidence. Uh, what I'm saying is this, in the case of uh, uh, normal science, in its original sense of Thomas Kuhn, uh, the, the criteria of acceptable evidence to uh, decide uh, whether certain actions like a face mask is effective or not is entirely determined by the uh, uh, internal criteria of expert community uh, designated by you know uh, current academic field. Uh, but in the case of uh, emergent case uh, uh, situation like uh, this COVID uh, situation, uh, you may want to consider uh, this uh, narrow range of evidence. Uh, uh, and enlarge them into the more uh, uh, historical or sociological evidence. Uh, for instance, in the area where this face mask is culturally very uh, familiar uh, because they use for the protection from the, uh, the pollen allergy or, or when, whenever you have a cold, if you have a custom of uh, uh, wearing this face mask, I mean, I'm in, the, uh, in that region uh, of the world, uh, in our countries and the, some other countries have this kind of uh, cultural heritage, then it's much easier to accumulate uh, uh, this historical evidence that although it's not scientific evidence, it, it's not collected in a scientific way and it's not dealt with a, a proper statistical method, but still you have a experience of uh, effectiveness of face masks in some other related disease, then it's easier uh, for us to accept that uh, uh, the effectiveness of facial mask uh, without actually having a full consensus uh, among the experts uh, in epidemiology or some other areas. So I, I, I think it's a, this uh, range of acceptable evidence uh, can be 
extended uh, uh, over the conventional uh, uh, understanding of normal science. And uh, it can be instrumental in uh, mediating between uh, your original question, the, between the fast science and the slow normal science. Thanks very much. And Trish? Just to come back, I mean, it's great to have Kuhn brought in uh, fairly near the beginning of this talk. Uh, and yes, the whole idea of what counts as quality in science um, is defined by a group of scientists. What are the problems? How should we investigate those problems? What counts as quality? What are the theories? What are the, the appropriate methods? And we've seen that play out very, very dramatically with what I've heard called epistemological trespassing by the evidence-based medicine community saying, hang on, we need a randomized controlled trial. The RCTs haven't proved and you know, they've, they've shown this, that and the other. Are we really looking for RCTs here now? We could carry on talking about Kuhn, but I think it'd be much more interesting to talk about Bourdieu because as I understand it, Bourdieu was quite interested in the link between these scientific paradigms or fields as he called them, subfields and power, political power. And I think one of the things that we might look at uh, is how politically well-placed different scientific subfields were to present their arguments. Uh, and, and one version, one narrative of what went on in the pandemic was that people with a hospital medicine background, trained in evidence-based medicine, actually, and also primary care background, uh, but, but very, very sold on experimental evidence from RCTs, were in politically powerful positions within, for example, the World Health Organization, within national policy bodies, uh, and imposed a particular version of the hierarchy of evidence uh, on political uh, and policy decision-making. Yes, thanks for that, Trish. So I think we've basically transitioned into the next topic that I wanted to discuss, which is evidence, uh, evidence-based medicine, um, and how we think about these things across the sciences. Uh, and I'll get to you. I know you had your hand up, Ross. So we'll get to you in just a moment. So, um, you know, as, as, you, as you alluded, Trish, um, you know, I think there have been a couple of different, again, a couple of different threads that have run through discourse in the pandemic. So on the one hand, people say we need more evidence-based medicine. Look at all these low-powered, um, cruddy trials. And on the other hand, we saw evidence-based medicine Having some having some influence in public health decision making around, let's say, face masks. So different different sciences have different ways they look at evidence, different standards, maybe different heuristics, um, and people have questioned whether or not evidence based medicines um, standards, its preferred kinds of evidence, its its ways of synthesizing evidence or doing reviews of the evidence base are appropriate um, outside the context of outside those contexts in which they're normally applied. So drugs, for instance. So, you know, do we need more evidence-based medicine in the pandemic? Do we need less? Um, are there contexts in which we need more and contexts in which we need less evidence-based medicine? And how should we think about evidence in an area like public health in which the evidence base is quite varied and diverse? Um, unlike the evidence base, perhaps sometimes in other areas of uh, medicine and public health where we might have, um, you know, five high quality, large randomized trials. Ross. Yeah, so I've sort of seen the past 30 years of my career flash before my eyes during this pandemic, having 
Uh, and it's interesting that people suddenly got interested in public health because it's typically been uh, sort of one of the least popular areas in the whole biomedical sciences. So I think we do need to start thinking differently. And it's been remarkable at different tables where you get engineers and vaccinologists and immunologists and uh, you know basic science people, implementation science trialists, all sort of, it's like the Tower of Babel. It's all these different languages of science and inference. So we might want to step back. I've been toying with this notion of panned inference. What is the way that we can look at forms of logic and reasoning uh, that may assist us? And John, it won't surprise you because we've had many discussions over the years on this notion of defeasible reasoning schemes and how defeasibility is a central feature of evidence. Uh, if, it's, uh, if it isn't defeasible, it isn't evidence. And if it's defeasible, it means that it's subject to modification, change, and varied uh, interpretations. Uh, so if you start with the and you know the problem with evidence-based medicine you know having studied at the school that created it with the people who created it before it was called evidence-based medicine is they actually never sat down and thought you know what is this thing that we're calling evidence other than the property of certain methodologies and uh, it's an ongoing stress and strain and everybody wants to be evidence-based and it's a completely vacuous and meaningless term uh, because it, the only thing it is is something that uh, isn't whimsical arbitrary or just because i say so so like the number of times in which it's like the greatest brand exercise in intellectual history uh, because it just gives a safe space for people to say something uh, aspirational or uh, uh, and I think to Trisha's point as a way of sort of monitoring or, or mobilizing the power of their position um, so I, I think the first step is to demystify evidence and to stop saying things are evidence-based because even the very idea of basing your decisions on something that's defeasible means that you're basing it on something that's shifting. And this is what's making people crazy is that they they have this kind of notion of, uh, of science producing certitude, uh, which it doesn't, uh, and not appreciating that it's going to be a dynamic change. And particularly in sort of high uncertainty situations like we have uh, in COVID about a year ago, uh, there is going to be no evidence to guide your decision on. And that's where I think this notion of panned inference needs to look at dynamics of scientific accumulation, particularly when you throw billions and billions of dollars to the scientific process to sort of harness uncertainty. Uh, but we need to sort of start thinking about what that would look like, where we can be more, where we need to be more precautionary and why, and where we can transition into uh, sort of thinking about uncertainty in different ways. But the other big issue is the communication of this, because I think it's been a complete uh, failure in many ways. And now we're having all this, there's a new language, which is abundance of caution, which is uh, undergirding decision making. So I'm not sure how abundance of caution uh, relates to precaution, uh, but the it seems that the discourse is becoming even more confused as time goes by in certain areas. So I think one, demystify evidence by not saying that things are evidence-based when they quite clearly aren't. Uh, take away the power of that phrase as something that is meaningful. And then maybe, we, and then think about the structures of reasoning that we need to put in place to help us move forward, which would be this kind of transdisciplinary way of thinking. Alex, I'll move to you. I agree that it's with, you know, within the sort of internecine debates about uh, you know, evidence-based medicine, um, the, the term has become meaningless. But in a sense, the pandemic has actually reminded me of how important it actually 
is to insist on evidence because my view is that there has been a shortage of evidence for the effectiveness of measures, um, particularly as they apply to lower middle income countries. Yeah, you know, they're, they're, um, there were measures that were adopted or recommended by the World Health Organization and adopted in wealthy countries, adopted in other countries, um, largely on a copycat basis. And there was no evidence that they would work, but also um, no good reason to think they would work. So no evidence in the broadest sense, you know, no warrant. Um, you know, if you have a situation where, you know, you have uh, uh, significant overcrowding, less than half of your population, less than half of households have piped water, um, people have to leave the household to get food and so forth, then telling them to stop working and stay home, um, it, it's just uh, just prima facie not going to reduce social contact by 75%, which was the amount you needed to reduce social contact um, uh, in the model that motivated that policy as it was applied in the country, in, in England and Europe and so forth. Um, this was then, you know, this, I'm talking about, of course, the, the, the model published by Imperial College London in, the, uh, in March of 2020. You know, that stuff is then done in uh, Africa or, or, or not done in, in many cases. Um, and there's just no good reason to think that it is going to work for you. It's this, it, will it work for you thing? And at the same time, there was no evidence at all to quantify the impact that would have on, on people's livelihoods and health um, and just general livability of life. And so, I mean, I, I mean, this, I'm bringing this, this sort of global South perspective to it, but I, I think that, that there was a real lack of evidence um, in, the, in the broad sense um, about whether any of this would work uh, and whether in particular it would work in settings other than Geneva or something where the World Health Organization numbers of them are. I think it's important to, 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 to variegate it by context. But in that sense, I do think there has been a, a really a gross lack of evidence. And I'm, I, I, I do. I also am not seeing the efforts to assess effectiveness anywhere in the world of things that were done, but, but particularly in, in those contexts, either to assess the, the effect of a regulation on behavior, because obviously that, that's one where, place where it can go wrong, or to uh, assess how the actual behaviors then led to changes in transmission rates. I accept, uh, I, I, I agree with uh, Alex uh, that uh, lack of evidence is a great problem, but uh, I wonder whether we should consider another problem, which is uh, uh, diversity of uh, uh, evidence from different areas, given the fact that we have a disunity of science. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, we had a situation in South Korea a few months ago when uh, there is uncertainties uh, about the, 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 the future progression of uh, uh, COVID-19. Uh, there is a different opinion uh, uh, came from the uh, different scientific community, uh, epidemiologists uh, uh, and uh, microbiologists and the clinical doctors. And within their community, there is a more or less consensus uh, based on uh, their criteria of evidence, and they have uh, some evidence for, for their fair conclusion. But uh, uh, when uh, evidence from different area compare with uh, other evidence uh, from the different area, then because of the incommensurability of uh, meta-evaluating evidence from diverse uh, different uh, academic disciplines, it was very difficult uh, to come up with a unique 
uh, uniquely convincing uh, conclusion over our action to take uh, based on the evidence. So uh, I, I don't have any solution to this, but uh, this uh, uh, evidence from uh, incommensurate different uh, academic discipline uh, should be also uh, considered uh, in the case of this emergency. I wanna, why don't we talk a bit about um, expertise in science communication? There have been a number of, of controversies that have inevitably filtered up into the world of media and mass attention. So here are some, here are some problems that we've faced. There have been a number of challenges related to science communication and scientific expertise. We've heard about these misinformation and disinformation, different channels giving us different information, sometimes inconsistent scientific and policy disagreements, even among members of the scientific and healthcare community. Um, and here we can point to examples um, like lockdown, as well as the mode of transmission of SARS-CoV-2, uh, droplet fomite contact versus aerosol. And people with diverse backgrounds um, treading into public health science, which gets at something we've been talking about already, and perhaps to use Trisha's word, trespassing in certain circumstances. Um, and some of the problems that arise from this might be that it could undermine clear and univocal public health messaging, but it also raises questions uh, like who are the real experts? You know, what do we do when there's no clear consensus or when it's not clear what the consensus is because the messaging is so mixed and there are many voices clamoring? And what ethical responsibilities do various actors have? Uh, what ethical responsibilities do scientists have as individuals who might, who might have their own preferred hypothesis that could push against the grain. What responsibilities do they have in communicating with the public, uh, including the responsibilities to a scientific consensus that might, they might not agree with even when it's there? Um, so I actually thought we could start with saying Wu, you for this question, because you've thought quite a bit about ethics and uh, technology, including scientific research on new technologies. And these days, uh, a lot of these controversies um, are around vaccines. So we face challenges such as misinformation and dis disinformation about vaccines, as well as challenges around how to communicate with the public around vaccine safety, uh, including when we learn of a new potential adverse event um, related to a vaccine as it rolls out on a mass scale. So from your perspective, how should we think about these problems? Wow, this is a huge topic. <laughs> uh, uh, I think uh, we start with uh, 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 two different uh, scenarios of uh, society where uh, the level of public trust in scientific expertise is high or low. I mean, the, uh, when public, general public, uh, uh, more or less uh, confident that uh, scientific expertise is important, especially with respect to these public health issues, uh, uh, that's the case in South Korea. Uh, still, we have a problem because uh, uh, as many people mentioned already, uh, the different expertise uh, uh, belonging to the different disciplines might come up with uh, uh, different opinions, when, especially when there is a, a, a large uncertainties about the nature of the epidemic and uh, the effectiveness of our measures. When general public has a confidence in the scientific expertise uh, uh, in the past, they tend to uh, want to hear uh, the definite answer for the nature of epidemic and the effective measure of epidemic rather than uh, different voices uh, from the different experts uh, from different academic disciplines. So 
when they hear these different voices, uh, depending on uh, uh, solidly based on their own expertise in their own disciplines, public tend to go the other extreme, saying that, okay, even expert doesn't know very well about these things. There are so many, so much ex uh, uncertainties uh, in this problem. So we don't have any kind of reliable uh, objective uh, 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 the evidence or the conclusion about this. I mean, every individual has to decide in its own way. Uh, that's a danger of even when uh, the public trust in science is high, uh, this kind of uncertainties and the epidemics goes on, uh, still we have this kind of uh, uh, danger. And uh, secondly, uh, when uh, public trust in scientific expertise is not that high, I mean, the, there are some areas in the world where uh, people have a, a more strong uh, epistemic value uh, in the uh, religious uh, uh, decisions or some other areas of uh, uh, personal belief system, and then there is a, a still larger problems because then even when there is a consensus among expertise uh, about the effective action to take, uh, many people won't uh, listen to this uh, epistemically uh, sound uh, advice, but go for their own way of uh, belief system. And uh, this is a huge challenge uh, to, to persuade them to accept this kind of uh, evidence-based uh, expertise. I, I think my uh, answer, I mean, the temporary answer to, to your original question is actually uh, given by Lowe's uh, final remarks uh, in your really uh, pertinent uh, uh, the, the talking, which is this. Uh, I think in the case of uh, uh, great uncertainties, uh, the scientific expertise should adopt the attitude of uh, putting forward their value judgment with their evidence-based expertise simultaneously when they talk to the general public. So they shouldn't say that, you know, this is definite answer. Uh, this is scientific research, so you should just accept it because general public won't buy this kind of uh, or confidence. Uh, but on the other hand, they shouldn't just say that, oh, there are so many other things we have to consider. We are not uncertain, or we are not certain about this conclusion. We still have a much more research to be done uh, uh, in order to uh, give you some definite answer. I mean, that's kind of a very risky scenario uh, for uh, public. Uh, uh, to uh, lose uh, their faith in uh, scientific knowledge. I think that the uh, more fruitful way of approaching this problem is, okay, uh, there are large uncertainties in this area, but upon the evidence we have collected uh, up to this point, and because the human life is more important than the uh, epistemic uncertainties, I personally believe we have to take this action. It is fallible. Uh, it is a uh, high risk of uh, responsibility, but I think that's the way of uh, scientific expertise to be used in this case of emergent, uh, uh, e sorry, emergency uh, situation. Thank you, Maya. Um, I'd like to bring in um, the work that's good work that's done in science and technology studies and science and te science technology and policy studies, which I think is helpful. First of all, to not frame this question about what are 
individual publics supposed to do when they hear this or that? And also what are the individual scientists supposed to do when they're communicating with the public? But instead to think about it um, much more um, socially, much uh, uh, more broadly. So we've already alluded to this a few times that there are numerous experts that are informing um, what we know about COVID-19 and to try to think that we can whittle it down to epidemiological models is, is false or, or children health experts is going to somehow answer these things, not at all. So uh, when, when scientists speak to the public, they should certainly be acknowledging that they are speaking to a certain slice of expertise. And because of that, they come in with a certain perspective, not, not, not to say that the perspective is biased, but it is uh, narrowed into one area of research and knowledge. Similarly, we need more ability to think through how we bring these things together. And I think actually STS does that quite well. They usually do, it's usually retrospective ca case studies, but they show the number of players that are, that are contributing to let's say a decision about uh, whether to ban a toxic chemical or something like that. It's never one scientist. We also need a lot of input from the public because they are stakeholders in public health emergencies. And we need some kind of uh, democratic framework for bringing in the various perspectives, including public perspectives. Alex? Yeah, I mean, this. I think the way that expertise has been talked about during this pandemic has been one of the most troubling uh, things about it. Um, uh, I mean, that, in my view, there are no experts on, on COVID-19. There are experts on different aspects of it. There's the virologists and there are epidemiologists, but that you, you can't, it's not like these are the experts on, you know, this is a new situation. And in a sense, that's true for, for, for any new situation. Um, because there's always an act of synthesis, uh, uh, and uh, you know, whenever you're trying to predict what's going to happen in all con things considered, way you've got to have different. Uh, uh, you've got to consider everything, and, and there isn't an expert in, in everything. Um, so, I mean, in a way, that's been extremely damaging, um, and perhaps it sort of it, it has it must be resonant with the climate uh, science uh, debates, where uh, the language has carried over, and uh, you know. Uh, Skepticism and deniers and stuff, and I, I'm sure that political context is part of uh, is, is part of why that is the way the issue was framed. When you have, because there are clearly are people who are just behaving in a way that's outlandish and just saying nobody can tell me anything. I believe what's in front of me, um, perhaps not even that. And and then you know because those are the same people who are also saying saying that about climate. It, you end up with this idea that you've got to listen to the experts, but that you know, is a problem when there aren't any actual experts on the exact question. Some, you've still got to perform some critical task. And, and related to that, I think one of the most unpleasant things about this has been to see the way scientists have treated each other when they disagree. I mean, you know, I've, I've read Thomas Kuhn and so forth, and, you know, I know in theory that's how it works, but some of the, I mean, the Great Barrington Declaration is an example of this, regardless of whether they're right or not, or whether you agree with them, you know, they're obviously serious people. And, they uh, are not taking a manifestly unreasonable position, but the treatment of those people, uh, uh, the attempt to discredit them in some cases, you know, it's hard to see how that's helpful from the point of view of anything like a well-ordered science or a well-ordered debate. Um, and the third thing I wanted to say related to that is, is, is that it's question, I wonder whether we really actually want trust in science. I mean, the whole attraction of science is that you don't have to trust it and it doesn't rely on appeal to authority. That's science's claim to fame um, over really any other knowledge system. 
Um, that's the that's the, the 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 point. So obviously, if you don't know about something and somebody else does, you'll need to get the knowledge. But the idea that trusting in science and trusting in particular in in in, in medical science is something we actually want to encourage seems to be wrong. And I agree with what Maya said about this. I mean, it's and you don't have to be dismissive. Uh, by saying you don't want to trust. But if, if the public is presented with this choice between trust and not trust, it's hard to blame them for not trusting because who wants, I mean, it's not scientific to just trust. So um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a really weird um, uh, uh, dialectic going on in that debate. And I, I would actually advocate for less trust, but more critical thinking, um, which is a, another way, I suppose, of saying more, more education without being too patronizing about that. Chris. Yeah, I, I agree with Alex, but I just want to come back to some of the things that Maya was talking about because, and, and maybe um, take those uh, forward a bit more. Uh, I totally agree that this, I know it's been framed initially as science communication to the public, but <clears throat> I think it's much more about science deliberation with the public. And that in itself calls for a bit of philosophical unpacking it is about uncertainty. It is about thinking which theoretical lens is relevant and appropriate here, which moral lens is relevant and appropriate here. Uh, and collective deliberation on what is the most appropriate way of, of skinning the cat, for, for want of a better metaphor, um, is actually a really important thing. Um, I'm thinking partly about uh, some of the work that Andrew van der Ven has done around um, pragmatism, uh, drawing, of course, on, on people like John Dewey, where in a, if, if you're taking a philosophically pragmatist approach to something, things do not become clear uh, and relevant until you have really engaged with the concrete situation at hand. And the people who can help you engage with that are going to be patients and the public and et cetera, et cetera. I'm going on later on today to talk to uh, people in India and they're gonna tell me which uh, aspects of ventilation policy are actually doable in the actual apartment blocks they live in, you know, that kind of thing. But as one engages with the concrete situation with its constraints uh, and um, particularities, some, philosophical lenses, some theoretical lenses just fade into the background as completely irrelevant and others become salient. So I think, um, I know pragmatism is, is not going to give us all the answers, but I think the, the fitting that in with the, the, the need for local and also, you know, national, international deliberation uh, is, is, our, is it's a responsibility that we have. Uh, so, so the idea that there is this science that people can trust, I agree with Alex. Now that's not the way to do it, I think. Ross? Yeah, just to pick up on, on points made by Trish and Maya and Alex about the need for uh, greater public engagement in deliberations and discussions. So for example, when we were trying to work on the triage policy uh, in our current province uh, under exigent situation, right? So they needed something because it looked like we were going to be flooded, but we didn't actually hit the threshold where you would need to trigger that. And then as the 
time evolved, there was questions asked about some of the decisions that were baked into the uh, triage uh, uh, protocol uh, that had the veneer of science, but actually had some fairly uh, potent effects on uh, particular populations of, say, people with disabilities or uh, other uh, characteristics. Now, back after SARS-1 and in, in, in preparation for uh, pandemic influenza, when colleagues and I from the Joint Center for Bioethics put together a report, we, we, we talked about the need to use the intra-pandemic period uh, for decisions that were gonna be highly contentious uh, and operating on underdetermined and uncertain science to have mechanisms in place uh, for engagement with communities. And I think picking up on Alex's point, we missed that entirely in terms of policy making for low and middle income countries. And I've heard that loud and clear from, from, from my colleagues there. And similarly, we failed to engage. So it's an issue of epistemic justice. We're, we're not including enough diverse voices uh, that have a stake in this, back to Alex's point, there is no COVID expert with, if it's a pandemic, it's all people. And we should have invested, we should have taken very seriously uh, the need for these types of processes to be put in place uh, uh, because we were told right, that this was going to happen. So it's a huge wasted opportunity. And so, and all it's done is irritate and annoy uh, people uh, because now they feel like they're not listened to. They've been disadvantaged. They've been cut out. And people who are making decisions are doing their best under these exigent situations. So this has forced upon everyone a set of suboptimal uh, decision-making conditions that was not necessary. So this is one thing I really want to point out. We created this problem for ourselves by neglecting uh, the intelligence and thinking that was out there telling us to have something in place uh, to mitigate, buffer, and manage this eventuality, which pretty much everybody in public health and epidemiology and infectious disease uh, for the last three decades has said is coming. So uh, that's something I think is really worth uh, reflecting on. We've talked a bit about it's come up now this idea of the relationship between the public or the publics uh, and scientists and other experts and this issue of trust. So I wanted to turn to you, Maya. Um, so you've thought about this issue quite a bit, especially in the context of vaccines. Uh, in fact, just this year you have a new book out called Vaccine Hesitancy, Public Trust, Expertise, and the War on Science. So my question uh, for you is, um, getting to the, the specific example of resistance to public health measures, um, even that's kind of a loaded term, but this kind of conflict or tension sometimes cashed out um, in various examples, uh, such as vaccine hesitancy. So, I mean, what are the sources, drivers of instances in which the public is reluctant or resistant or even outright refuses to follow recommendations made by what are considered to be public health experts? Um, is it a matter of trust, untrustworthy uh, institutions, populism, you know, a, a death of expertise? What's the right framing of the problem and how should public health and the rest of us, all of us respond? As, as frustrating as some of the public resistance to various public health measures are, I understand them to be a demand for equity and justice. So I'm right away starting with a more charitable position on 
refusal around masks and things like that than the usual thinking, which the usual thinking is that these people don't understand science, uh, they're stupid or something along those lines. My, my research started around pediatric vaccine hesitancy where there was a stronger case for that because there was a strong consensus on, on those vaccines. Why would anyone refuse vaccines that have a, a strong consensus? However, uh, vaccines in particular, and I'm gonna say now other public health measures too, are flashpoints for a number of, of issues. It's not just whether you wanna wear a mask or not, whether you want to vaccinate your children or not, but also your perception of how that technology fits into the broader scheme of, of, of government, your life, your liberties, um, I could go on. So, so we see it strongly in social science research around vaccine uptake is people trust vaccines and will take up vaccines to the extent that they trust the system that brings them the vaccines. And that tells us that it's much more than whether you trust science. It's got more to do with whether you trust the institutional framework that includes science, of course, and has a lot of power over your life and, and your livelihood. So th that's how I understand the issue. And uh, I always move away from the conversations around what's wrong with these people as if they're sort of an us them thing. Instead, there's something in the circumstances of people's lives where they don't see as a science is working into their benefit. They see science as let's say serving power interests, whether government or corporate interests. And they see the, uh, the the policies that come around it as not conducive to the lives that they want to live. For more Philosophers on Medicine, visit www.philosophersonmedicine.com.